This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alison Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined by Emerging Markets Editor Ed Reed and Content Editor Andrew Dykes. And, uh, well, back after a little bit of man flu, lads, not COVID, but there's something going on, I think. Um, have you both managed to stay clear of the dreaded lurgy? Are you keeping safe out there? Yes, I, I, I try and do this by never leaving the house. <laughs> um, that's the only way to stay safe, and I'm sticking to the pandemic guts. is still a thing. For <laughs> I'm inadvertently in the same boat as Ed, in that I'm <laughs> mostly not leaving the house, but mostly just don't have a lot to do. Well, that is a very sorry reflection <laughs> on our top news team, and I think you're both going to have to get out of the, get out of the house in the in the coming days. <laughs> um, we will start this week with news of Rishi Sunak's intention to roll back on certain green energy policies, including. Uh, but not limited to deferring the ban on sale of petrol and diesel cars in the UK. That's pushed back from 2030, five years to 2035. There's also a delay in regulations which would phase out gas and oil boilers. Uh, Again, an exemption here to phase out those types of boilers by 2035. That's pushing it back from just 2026. Both quite substantial and both have been met with, I think it's fair to say, pretty widespread derision from the business community and factions of uh, Mr. Sunak's own political party. So Rishi Sunak says the UK will still hit net zero despite this. Uh, The Committee on Climate Change is reported today as describing that as wishful thinking. And this does feel a little bit like the PM marking his own homework. Um, As I say, uh, you know, it wasn't so long ago the Conservative Party uh, under Boris Johnson, no less, uh, was seen as pretty progressive in its uh, climate pledges during COP26 just what, less than two years ago. Um, why Sunak done this? Well, we have got a general election coming up, as you know, this being seen as very political. The Conservatives are down in the polls to Labour. They now seem to have found a platform of, well, expensive net zero policies to differentiate themselves and take a stance seemingly against Labour, who are obviously kind of in the polar opposite to that. Uh, hoped this will strengthen uh, Sunak's position amid some criticism, some optics of him being seen as uh, a weak or ineffective leader. He's built this as sensible green leadership. Um, certainly, that's not how businesses have reacted. He's claimed this will protect consumers from high costs of net zero. However, we're told that even a 1% increase in cost over time could increase the UK's net zero bill to the tune of about £35 billion. If it becomes 2%, it doubles and so on. Sunak said, you know, the UK has effectively over-delivered on net zero so far, only accounting for something like 1% of global emissions. But again, from that business and investment perspective, you see the issues here. Not only is the UK, I suppose, missing out on the climate leadership piece, companies have been putting some of these policies and these uh, these efforts into motion based on policy targets. Once again, you know, like oil and gas on the other side of the spectrum, the UK is a place which you know lacks that stability for investment. If you look at Charge UK, it represents uh, EV charging providers like BP, Shell, etc. Uh, they had one of the harder statements out yesterday saying this is extremely worrying news, is not consistent with economic stability or confidence. They go on to say it will compromise the entire industry and place jobs and consumer and investor confidence at risk. We've heard similarly from Renewable UK. If the PM is so concerned with bills, why not do more to decouple electricity prices from expensive gas? Similarly from Hydrogen UK, from Global Underwater Hub, plethora others. And I think the answer Unfortunately, as we said, is is political. Um, I, I have seen uh, Toyota uh, welcoming it, but that seems to be the outlier. Um, but yeah, I mean, hard to see how this won't be damaging to the green agenda. You've got the 
the IRA in America, the Green New Deal in the EU. Um, why come here and invest with this going on, guys? It's uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. going to be trying to diplomatic as I can. I, I watched the statement going out, and it was one of those ones where you're kind of like scraping yeah. <laughs> the desk. It, lots of factoids were dropped. This sort of ten thousand pounds cost of a heat pump kept getting dropped, and then suddenly in the Q and A, it plummeted. You know, it, uh, accelerated to like fifteen thousand pounds. Yeah. Just there are like silly little things like insulation targets, which he's, you know, he was saying, oh, well, the cost of like insulating, you know, older properties could be 10, 20,000 pounds. But you think about the people like, if you're already in that situation, the best thing you can do is insulate your house. If, mm. if it's going to cost that much, how, how much energy are you losing yeah. every year that, you know, you need to do that? It's, I mean, it seems like such madness and, and such, the one thing that we've heard, I think, from every corner of business around, uh, the transition, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's renewables, it's kind of certainty and stability. And it just feels like, yeah, another rug yeah. being <laughs> pulled, rolled up and tossed in a skip. I mean, I, I think, I think you know, I, 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 can, I can, you know, obviously largely agree. I think it, it does feel like obviously a very kind of a polit political sort of a point scoring, doesn't it? And I think that maybe, uh, I don't know quite what the diplomatic way of saying it, but, but, but a, a certain degree of uh, kind of playing loosey-goosey with uh, with 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 the facts that and everybody else sees them, um, is is a bit of a sort of a worrying step for the for the, for the prime minister. And, and I mean, I think I mean I think you know things like saying that the UK is over delivered on its uh, on its on its targets. I mean, you know, we've managed to reduce coal a lot, and that's kind of really done a lot of the heavy lifting. But I think there's obviously still a long way to go in terms of moving to clean energy sources, right? As we saw with the, with those recent uh, round of uh, CFD auctions mm -hmm. and those kind of big, uh, big, big plans for, uh, for, for offshore winds. So, so I think it's, it's, it's clearly a kind of a worrying sign. And I think also, um, you know, obviously we don't know quite when the next election is going to be, but presumably the Labour Party would just roll these back, right? Yeah, well, a, a very valid point about the CFDs as well, Ed. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably worth noting we have been here it feels time and again in recent months and um, with um, businesses kind of shouting out about a lack of confidence or, or policy missteps um, as regards the green agenda. Uh, as, as you say, no offshore wind uh, developers attracted for to make bids uh, or, or made bids, I should say, in the latest uh, CFD auctions. I think that was earlier this month. Um, obviously, there's been similarly kind of um, questions over future North Sea licenses, which we've talked about on this podcast before, and I'm probably not going to relitigate that for just now. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, you know, one assumes that Labour would roll it back, and I think that's probably part of, certainly part of the reason why they're doing this, they're trying to establish a clear differential platform. Um, and maybe to Andrew's point as well about insulation and the cost of heat pumps and and and, and the plethora of other you know, consumer issues. If you're presuming to lead, if you're the party in power and you don't have an answer to that, maybe it's time to reassess your position. The the other thing about the the leading on on tar over delivering on on targets is that we have, as, as Ed says, we have managed to achieve that. But we've also, you know, we don't make things here. We've offshored a lot of that responsibility mm -hmm. while simultaneously complaining that China is vastly more. <laughs> You know, is a vast, vastly greater emitter than we are, and th those are you know two sides of the same coin, right? We've done the low-hanging fruit, and we have done it. You know, that has been a success. That's fair, but we're now at the point where it's like it, it is the hard choices. It is around transport and heat, and they're the just huge, huge chunks. And the, the CCC's already said, you know, they have some concerns about uh, the ability to deliver on I think carbon budgets six and seven. Uh, I think they. <laughs> 
they uh, diplomatically said ahead of the leak or when the leak came out uh, early yesterday. Well, you know, we'll bide our time. We, you know, we can't possibly comment on anything that's to do with leaks. And then pretty much came out with a statement <laughs> after the speech that said, yeah, we have even more concerns than we did before. Um, it, it's just, I, I, what I worry about is, is it's kind of the, this kind of exceptionalism, right? That like we, we, don't need to, we don't need to kind of follow the rules that we've set ourselves or the ambitious targets because we're already doing great and we don't need to worry. And just kind of jumping on that kind of question about rules, right? So it's, it's, it's a legally uh, committed uh, target, isn't it, to uh, you know, reduce to net zero. Do you think that this might face some sort of legal challenge? I mean, obviously, so, so Rishi Sunak has still said that, that we can still achieve net zero. Do you think if people take uh, exception to that? Do you think there might be a chance that there might be some sort of legal effort to hold the government to account on that? It's certainly the sort of thing we've seen in the past, Ed. I mean, you know, I get, whenever there's kind of uh, challenges to the net zero agenda, you know, as you say, it is legally binding. I think there's, there's definitely scope uh, for that sort of thing to go on. Uh, and we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that. Um, I, think, I think the point about uh, the, the economic and industrial side of net zero. I mean, look, there's a huge uh, economic opportunity with it as well, as Andrew's kind of saying and highlighting. Much of that's gone to China. Um, you know, if, if we signal that we don't want to, you know, build things here or hit targets here or manufacture here, there, there is a jobs perspective to that as well that we need to be mindful of and, uh, and an industrial perspective that we need to be mindful of. Uh, and it, it just feels like such a short-term uh, you know, it's 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 frustrating to see. I think, and and I can I can't imagine what you know people and companies who've been, you know, spending years planning this. Um, you know, they get this kind of messaging through. You know, what do you do? And perhaps there's been some. You know, perhaps there have been discussions behind the scenes saying, "Oh, we might do this, we might do that." But you absolutely have to take them at face value of what they're saying politically uh, to the public. Um, and on that basis, this is just, yeah, really disappointing short-termism the other thing is just you know is the way these dominoes fall right is that there's a by-election in uxbridge in south Ryslip yes, right where yes. uh-huh. suddenly someone jumps onto the idea that it was a rejection of the ulez which i don't think there's actually much a huge amount of evidence for in, in a narrow by-election right and then you know the, the ripples the dominoes continue to fall and then suddenly we're here whatever six months later and it's like we're gonna roll back a lot of these net zero targets that kind of haven't been up for debate for a long time right mm-hmm. there's 20 2030 uh, petrol diesel sales ban has been 12-ish years, something like that. Um, sorry, six-ish years in, in the making, you know, already. Just moving back the, the goalposts and it's just like, come on, guys. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that was a, a balanced debate. <laughs> sorry. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. We'll certainly keep an eye on any kind of legal challenges, as Ed says, and uh, the continuing fallout from the business community. Next up, we'll be moving back towards oil and gas uh, after this. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. 
Okay, on the flip side of the coin there, the windfall tax is back on the agenda, oil prices are rising, and Andrew's been taking a look at a bit of that through the context of Serica Energy's results, which we've had this week with a couple of lines coming out of that. Um, maybe take us through Serica firstly, uh, Andrew. So yeah, this is Serica Energy. Uh, it's a mid-tier uh, North Sea-focused E&P. Uh, interim half-year results this year. Uh, what's notable is that this is the first major filing since it took over Tailwind Energy in March. That was a deal that I think uh, was tipped at the end of last year and completed in March. So uh, pre-tax profits this, uh, for the first half of just under 300 million, uh, up 50% year on year. Uh, and that was rewarding shareholders with a nine pence uh, per share dividend as well. The uh, increase comes despite lower oil and gas prices. And again, the, the Tailwind uh, deal added, I think, about 100 million in profits, they said in their, in their results statement. They also um, reset the balance between their production. So I think they were very, very heavily gas-weighted prior to the acquisition. That's now uh, reset to gas is 55% of production and oil is 45%. So kind of a bit of a strategic reposition for the company as well. Um, its production uh, for the first half totaled 49, just over 49,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day, again up on last year, and uh, it lowered its guidance for the rest of the year to about 40 to 45,000 uh, BOEPD, just due to some slower maintenance happening on its existing fields. So on the whole, kind of good, stable performance and, and good in, uh, in the wake of the takeover, but it was contrasted with what uh, the CEO Mitch Flegg called a wholly <laughs> unwelcome burden. Uh, of the energy profits levy, the windfall tax, and the wider impact on the sector. Now, what's interesting is that Serica is on paper a pretty big beneficiary of, of the EPL. You know, it's investing in what it says are short cycle projects uh, in, in kind of new production, uh, small, you know, modest investments, modest amounts of production in short amount of time, kind of a year to 18 months, it seems, uh, all well in scope of this, the, the, the rebates that are offered as part of that. So it's already used allowances uh, that, are, that are out there for several projects. So it's been doing some light well intervention work at Bruce. Uh, it's been doing uh, other work, I think, at Rum and, and Keith as well. And a significant uh, four-well drilling campaign uh, on the cards for next year around the Triton area. So that will cover uh, Bittern, Gannett E, Guillemot, Northwest, and Evelyn. Uh, in the meantime, in the background, it's also submitted a draft uh, FDP for its 100% operated Belinda field. Um, so that's hoping to be sanctioned next year. That's 4 million barrels of oil and 5 billion cubic feet of gas and would be tied back to the Triton FTSO as well. So uh, along with the acquisition as well, it has 400 million in tax losses from Tailwind. Um, so it's, it says it's in a pretty good position to shelter it from most of the worst effects of uh, tax take for the next kind of three years or so. But <laughs> uh, in, in speaking with executives after the call, you know, they kind of made clear that this this burden of the, the profits uh, levy is, is shrinking the, the local opportunity pool. And so that they're looking increasingly out with the UK North Sea as part of their M&A. I think earlier in the year, Chief Investment Officer Steve Edwards had mentioned plans to look beyond the UK during uh, a results call. And he'd said that Norway would probably be their preferred location. Um, he was uh, asked again uh, this week about whether that had progressed. Mitch Flegg said he couldn't be too specific on the state of the negotiations but said that they are and remain in discussions on more than one opportunity in Norway and a few other things in other European countries as well. Um, he said that they're in a classic M&A position right now and that they've seen several assets that could work for them, but they can't. They're just uh, kind of negotiating on the price, basically. 
and uh, that's that's the stage where they are. Mm. Um, they're they're keen to make entry into Norway, but not at any cost. He said it's not it's not a kind of flight, but more that they're just keen to to look elsewhere. So I, I spoke with them after the call uh, about why. So Serica already had uh, interest in Norway until about 2008, and then it sold off its its local subsidiary to Spring Energy at the time, and at the time deemed the assets not core. Um, so Mr. Flegg said at the t- you know. This isn't a huge change of strategy. This isn't you know, a transformation of the company, but it's it's more about this lack of opportunity in the UK as a direct result of the windfall tax. He said there's there's so many things right now that are just not economic in the UK that, yeah. that one wouldn't look at them. Um, there's still good projects, but there are just fewer things that they would be interested in, so they're looking overseas. Um, he said that they're not desperate to do a deal because they need it, um, and that you know I challenged him on that. You know you're you're in a pretty good position. You have these these tax shelter losses. You also have kind of the rebates that you're getting for investing in these short cycle projects. You are kind of the poster child for what what companies should be doing with their capital in light of this levy. Um, he basically just said, yeah, we know we've got a good runway for, for stuff, but in three years time, we are going to want to be bigger and we are going to need more production. Yeah. And uh, we're looking at the, the deals while we can. I don't know whether it's a little bit of, you know, eating your cake and having it too, mm. but uh, I also think you can be, you can benefit from... <laughs> EPL while not necessarily being in, in favor of yeah. it. So I think it's an in- interesting position. You know, it's uh, the latest UK producer to look elsewhere. Obviously, we've had Harbour and Enquest looking overseas, but it's uh, it's not a good look, again, for the, the kind of investment landscape. They're they're making clear that they're investing these uh, these modest projects, but he's saying, you know, long-term big stuff, that, that's not the, in their wheelhouse and they'll, they'll look elsewhere, basically. Yeah, I mean, what, whilst, whilst the windfall tax is in place, it makes sense to try to take advantage of the the legislation as it stands, I suppose. Um, but yeah, in, really interesting to hear once again about the the impact of this levy on the M and A landscape. Um, Andrew, I spoke to, to Ithaca Energy's boss uh, Alan Bruce last week. Obviously, they completed the they, they became one hundred percent owner in Cambo in the west of Shetland after uh, Shell decided to exit. They took Shell's stake on, um, and they confirmed to me, you know. You know they would be looking to come in with another farming partner. Um, asked about how he sees that progressing, uh, Mr. Bruce, he did point to the current kind of review of the fiscal regime in the UK, which might improve things and provide some degree of certainty. Um, my question kind of remains: Will Labour respect that review once in power? Um, what I've had from I spoke well actually I spoke to the CEO of a small operator yesterday, and and he said something similar to what I've heard from other big players is that. What they seem to be banking on is there's a difference between labor and opposition and labor in power. Uh, The industry seems to be riding on this kind of unspoken belief that once they're in, labor will not want policies which will kill the industry or damage the economy. Um, You know, yes, that's partly to do with the influence that the unions have on that party. Um, I don't know, the signals they've sent in recent months might suggest otherwise, but I guess we won't ultimately know until they set out clearly the policy position, which I, I still don't think they've necessarily done. Um, so presumably that will be forthcoming. It was interesting. Um, yeah, Mitch, Mitch Flagg also was asked during the investors' call about you know what he sees as the potential new government. Um, and I think he made kind of the same acknowledgments that you were, Alistair, that you know, there's, there's clearly something happening. Obviously, they, they don't determine the timing and they, they keep a watching brief on all the time and then they speak with politicians. But there was a suggestion that they were kind of twinning their project cycle with the election cycle and that basically all of the work that they were kind of putting on the books right now would probably happen or would be in motion before any general election. Uh, and he said in a, in a period of political uncertainty, the reason for 
doing that is that we are not exposing ourselves to long-term changes in tax, um, which I think goes right back to your point, right? Like they can, people can only work with what they've got and what they're being told and the horizons that they're being given. So you have to kind of take everything at their at their words that yeah, <laughs> these things yeah. will continue. It's, it's it's a really messy situation. Um, we are we've been told and we've been told time and again that uh, uh, Keir Starmer would be making his trip to Aberdeen during the summer. The summer has come and gone. If anybody's looking at the windows right now, um, but you know uh, from one of the discussions I've had that, that people still seem to think that would be that's on the agenda at some point. Um, it'd be bad politics if 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 they reneged on that, but. Should it be up uh, in the heart of kind of the oil and gas industry, that would, it would seem, be a, an opportune time to get into the meat of the policy ambitions. Um, okay, well, look, thanks, Drew. We'll, uh, I think we'll continue that conversation a bit on M&A, a bit about the investment uh, landscape after this. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Ed, well, you've been taking a look, all this discussion about the North Sea and the investment landscape, you've been taking a look at kind of M&A on a more kind of global basis. Uh, what have you been What have you been looking at? Yeah, so uh, I had a, you know, a number of calls this week, but uh, but, but one with, uh, with with some lawyers at uh, Bracewell who, who kind of were talking about the uh, the, the M&A outlook in, in, in the upstream. And they, and they painted quite a, quite a rosy picture. You know, they were saying, you know, high oil prices, sort of flexibility in terms of how to kind of get deals done is all... Is all kind of you know helping drive some of those uh, some of those deals forward. Uh, they raised some concerns. They said you know ESG is kind of uh, posing some 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 challenges around sort of bank support and and, and the way the areas in which banks are, are happy to to kind of um, help, help help sort of see those deals forward. So I, I think the, the surprising thing for me in terms of their, their ESG comments was it's not just the E right. So obviously the E is in terms of sort of carbon emissions and banks have made sort of net zero commitments. But the uh, the G, the, that kind of the governance side of things, has also seen those banks kind of pull back from some of those emerging markets, which might pose challenges around, for instance, corruption and, and transparency. And this is an increasingly uh, an, an area that that those kind of financial institutions are not uh, willing to take internationally. So European banks kind of pulling back from that sort of historic area. And BNP Paribas, for instance, is is kind of been a long term uh, big hitter in that space. And is, uh, has has really kind of rode back its commitments there. So I mean, the the one the one the one bright spot they said was the, the North Sea, which was still able to secure international lending consortia. Oh. That was the the only bright spot it seemed for. Oh the North really? Sea. Oh well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> surprise, apologies surprise. for that. Um, I mean, because it, it was quite interesting. So I, I, I spoke to, to 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 a few other guys as well this week. And uh, so I spoke to uh, Arrow, who were in Colombia, Afentra in Angola, and Jadestone, who was sort of uh, Southeast Asia and Australasia. 
And all of them were talking, you know, very positively about M&A uh, and, and about sort of seeing these opportunities. They obviously all sort of seeing these high oil prices and the way in which, you know, using the kind of uh, the, uh, the 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 date of completion to to effectively use the uh, use use that to kind of pay for itself. Um, but very few had uh, had had kind of kind words for the North Sea, and and obviously kind of the 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 windfall tax was really brought up as as one of those areas in which, you know, the UK government is seen as being quite hostile, I suppose, in some ways to uh, to, to to investment, and I think really kind of you know drawing a lot of uh, differences from other other areas. So Afendra, who in Angola, we're, we're talking very positively about the ways in which the government there and the regulator is really kind of very open to to discussing terms and and, and trying to get uh, those kind of oil and gas fields into into development. Obviously, a number of mature fields, uh, you know, in the sort of you know medium sized sort of area that have not been historically developed in Angola because it's so concentrated with uh, super majors. And Angola kind of sees this as an opportunity to uh, to to kind of you know get more companies in, more companies investing in these kind of smaller areas, and and, and seems really keen to uh, to kind of see that move forwards. And I thought the other one was Colombia, where uh, this uh, Canadian company Arrow is 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 is, is doing some business. Um, and obviously, uh, Colombia elected uh, a, a famously left-wing uh, president last year. He was a former rebel, um, so so really sort of seen as, as as you know sort of opposed to a lot of what the oil and gas industry has been talking about, and has made some sort of you know commitments in terms of sort of you know some uh, some some limitations on on oil and gas, but has essentially said you know that the onshore business. That's you know really driving the economy. I think it's uh, oil, oil is still the largest uh, single source of revenue to the Colombian government, uh, and he's essentially said that he's very happy to kind of see that kind of continue. Obviously, looking at the sort of the social dividends, the you know monetary dividends, and the the sort of the, the, the returns to the country. So it's a sort of a strange sort of a mix where it's kind of a bit yes and a bit no, but 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 overwhelmingly kind of positive. Sorry, don't sorry to interrupt you. Ed. I just want to I just want to ask because you talk about you know the more perhaps some um, more uh, better places to invest potentially. I mean, I was looking at your arrow exploration piece there. By the way, try to get a press trip over there. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think you mentioned so basically arrow in Colombia tax free while they're drilling and operating. Is is that the norm? That seems remarkable. Um, if true. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it seems to be there's a, a kind of a, obviously like a real sort of incentives for uh, for exploration. I mean, I think, I, I suppose, look, I mean, Colombia has, has has had difficulties up until a number of, you know, up until fairly recently. Yeah. It's had a sort of a fairly uh, significant sort of um, long running insurgency sort of civil war. I don't know how quite how you, you, you would say it, but obviously that's now uh, been resolved. Uh, kind of FARC has, you know, put down its its guns and they've, they've reached some sort of political settlement. And obviously, the, the the new president is is kind of working on on extending that to to bring in new rebel groups and and sort of increase that sort of level of of, of sort of security. So I think there is there are some sort of security concerns in Colombia. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing about Arrow is that um, they sell their oil at the wellhead, so they don't have to worry about you know pipeline security right. and other things right. that might prove a bit challenging. That we've seen some sort of you know. Uh, explosions and sort of sabotage in, in certain points in, in in Colombia in the past, in as we have in other countries, right? So I think yes, there, there there are sort of you know those kind of challenges ahead. But I think you know obviously if you can find your niche and um, 
and 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 take advantage of it, then it's 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 pretty supportive. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was it, it was it was a surprisingly kind of a positive story. I thought, um, and and just sort of you know more broadly about about M and A. Yeah, the point you made about the the G and ESG, I think, is interesting as well. I think it speaks to like maybe a larger cultural shift within within banking and probably within energy as well right that you this idea of the sort of cowboy <laughs> company going out and drilling wells and kind of doing whatever it takes to get it done it clearly doesn't fly with almost anyone in that value chain now right like you, you're just not going to get lending banking support and stuff if you're found to be doing yeah. weird shady stuff in the way that perhaps you know 20 years ago that it's kind of well, well it's no problem yeah absolutely and you know we've we've seen we've i mean obviously the the uk has increased its uh, anti-corruption efforts uh the us the uh scpa i mean so yeah i mean i think you know companies are taking it increasingly seriously aren't they and I mean, I suppose that's the question, isn't it? If um, you know these, there, there is this sort of shift to kind of localization, right? Which I think was what, what Bracewell were talking about. So, uh, if you've got an African project, you need sort of African banks. If you need a, if you've got a Middle Eastern project, you need sort of a Middle Eastern banks. So, I think you know there is there is that sort of you know sense that there is you know there is the the capital is available, it's looking for a home, and and you know there are these opportunities, but obviously there is there are those you know kind of. Amid that move to uh, you know different providers of capital, it's the same level of, of of due diligence going on. Obviously, that would have to be you know kind of uh, front and center in terms of obviously if you're a UK listed or or, or, or based company, that's that's one of those things you have got to watch out for. So, I think you know yes, the the, the, the governance issue is is an interesting, one, but I, I thought it was interesting just in in that sense that it was you know because I was I was expecting it to be purely based on on kind of carbon emissions, but it feels like. That uh, those kind of concerns about corruption are, you know, kind of sharpening that focus. Um, but yeah, it seems like uh, the world is uh, is uh, is the oil company's oyster at the moment, apart from perhaps the North Sea. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have got some uh, some, some 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 warm words about M and A to, uh, to 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 look forward to off the UK. Well, as you've just heard, Sarah are going to Norway, <laughs> but. but uh... <laughs> No, I mean, look, yeah, I, look. I think the Norwegians are really enjoying. Yeah, it. I, I, look, I think I think until this basically this fiscal review that's underway right now, um, the government has promised to set out next steps by the end of the year on that. Um, until that kind of cl- cl- clears up, I'm not sure we're going to see too much. Um, you know, we did see this week um, some tentative news uh, about uh, Orcadian Energy. It's a pretty small player, but trying to get a. A sizable find called Pilot up and running. They said they've entered into heads of agreement on an operate with an operator to farm into that. So that could be a good sign. And we're expecting, if all goes well, that could pull through um, come uh, you know later this year and November time. Um, M&A and lending in the North Sea. I mean, look, I, I've constantly kind of heard from companies. I spoke to Chris Cox, the former CEO of Spirit Energy, um, a month or so ago for his new business, Curium Resources. It's a Southern North Sea-focused gas player, and they're obviously looking to uh, ex- you know, extract enough finance to, to get that going uh, in, in earnest now. Um, he was talking quite a lot about, I guess, it is easier to make the case to lenders uh, for you know, a gas-focused player than an oil-focused player, and that's despite you know, the UK being a net, uh, a net importer of both. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a tricky landscape out there right now. I, I think, um, I think that your piece talking about the, the reducing number, the reducing pool of lenders, uh, for oil and gas as well. You know, we've, we've definitely seen that, um, the banking institutions, um, just not wanting that on their books, not wanting that in their annual reports, despite, you know, 
I would argue they're not really dealing with the problem, um, considering you know, as I mentioned, the the balance of imports there uh, and the fact that you know domestic resources should be used. Um, but yeah, it's it's a tricky one. Um, I think it's a communication problem, perhaps as well. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not. I don't have the answers. But yeah, it's a tough. It's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. I think. I suppose. Just. I, mean, I think the thing that kind of really stood out was that point about sort of regulatory certainty, mm-hmm. right? I think you know places like so. So speaking to Paul McDade from Aventra about Angola, and he was saying you know they they've just had this sort of license renewal, and he was saying that it was so important to get it you know in well in advance of the expiry date because that gives this you know Aventra and its its partners on this block three hundred five offshore Angola sort of certainty about the future, right? That gives them certainty out to twenty forty about where those license terms are going to be. And I think just like I mean I, I don't want to be too critical of, of 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 the North Sea, but it just feels like you know like the the, the rules have changed you know with the energy profits levy, and then uh, there there might be more reviews coming, and then the Labour Party is going to come in and maybe change the rules again. And I'm wondering is it is it maybe not the you know the the, the tax in itself that's the problem? You know, obviously Norway is a famously high tax destination. But it's just that certainty about, you know, kind of uh, what comes next, right? If you can account for like, oh, yeah, it's fine, like taxes, you know, however many percent, but it, I know it's going to be for the next 20 years. That gives me some sort of an idea. It's this idea that, you know, maybe the Labour Party is going to come in and change the rules. Again. That feels like a a really big challenge. Whereas, you know, places like Angola, there's maybe a bit more certainty. We should all be learning a little bit more from the Angolan Ministry of Petroleum and Licensing, it sounds like. That's the lesson today. That's that's the key takeaway from this uh, podcast. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, look around the world with Energy Voice. Can we afford a hot air balloon on the company card? We'll explore that in the next episode. <laughs> Meantime, that is it for this week's Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Ed and Andrew for joining me. I've been Alsa Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.